Hello, everybody. Hi. When did we start that? I, he does it when we go to fast food restaurants, and I tell him that he needs to stop because someone's going to spit in our food. <laughs> you don't have to be mean, okay? <laughs> it's okay. It's just really, it feels really happy for... <laughs> The content the of our podcast, I guess. Matter. We can be happy people. Uh, we are happy people. And hate okay. life. I'm happy people. How about that? <laughs> it's well, okay. <laughs> no. It's fine. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. We are the Nightmare Collective. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about true crime shiitake mushrooms today. Yes. Don't laugh at me. No, I was that just brought back childhood memories that I didn't yeah, realize uh, spy I had. Kids. Yeah, shiitake mushrooms. Oh shit, Taki mushrooms. mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I started using that after Spy Kids. Oh yeah, wow. Didn't wasn't that the way that you could do it without saying it? Like, you know? quote unquote, getting in trouble. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So I want to get us going right on, like right, right going. So okay. I'm gonna ask a question. Right going. Can you just stop? Right meow? <laughs> yes, right meow. Um, what has been, like, has there been anything true crime related that you've been really paying attention to um, over the the past, like, I mean, it's been a while since we've, since we've recorded. Yeah. Is there anything specifically that you've been uh, watching, um, doing research on just, just because it's catching your eye? Anything in the headlines? Um I know that there's some pretty crazy stuff happening with a couple things, and and I I thought it would be this would be the perfect time to have that conversation. I I mean, there Scott Peterson has been in the news a lot. Well, not a lot, I guess. If you're a true crime fan, a lot. Yeah. Um, which I think is really fascinating. Um, I how that whole case ended, I think, is fascinating. Um, because you know, like all the stuff about a woman who has an unborn child and is that considered to murder, you know, and mm-hmm. he got the death penalty and then they got rid of the death penalty, you know, yeah. all these things. There's but so many twists and turns. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I don't think that he did it necessarily, but there's like a lot of weird coincidences and speculation. He did himself no favors. No. The man no. did himself no favors. He really didn't. Um, but they're trying to get him a new trial which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what almost 20 years old. Yeah. It was like 2003, 2004. Which is crazy, that's insane to think about. I don't even remember it happening. Oh, really? And then we watched the documentary. I remember seeing it in the news and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we watched the documentary, um, you know, on Netflix when it came out. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of sitting there going, I don't, no i felt so oblivious like i was i was an oblivious child are you when that happened are you talking about chris watts are you talking about Uh, scott peterson oh oh no (laughs) you might be talking about chris hey guess what cody messed up no it's but it's a similar case it's a really similar case Mm -hmm. and because scott peterson it was his wife was also pregnant was also yeah Yeah, and and then they had two daughters and like his whole thing Mm -hmm. was whoops that he so i mean sum it up for you cody (laughs) scott peterson they lived near san francisco area and it was christmas eve 
she went missing and he claimed that he had gone he was going to go golfing but it was too rainy to go golfing so he decided to go fishing because that's something you do in the rain two hours away in like the san francisco bay area which it isn't good anyway and she supposedly went for a walk and the dog showed back up at the house with the leash on and no her and then like he was it's essentially the plot of gone girl is oh. like his Actually, yeah. okay not not that she was faking it but like yeah. no but like it paired up so nicely yeah for sure like yeah storylines and like he was cheating on her and like when they were at her like vigil he called his whatever Mistress. yes that's the word mm-hmm. and was pretending like he was in france at the eiffel tower and was like it's just so great here and like all this stuff and oh. anyway Mm-hmm. Is it, there audio of that? Yeah. Yeah. The, they ended up she, using her for a sting operation. Yeah. She called the police and was like, I think that this is what's happening. And they had her record their phone conversations. Well, mm-hmm. shit. So anyway, but it, but he did kill his pregnant wife. And then it was like, she was like eight months pregnant. It was like late pregnancy. Oh, so this isn't mm-hmm. even like... She was super Just pregnant. happens to be pregnant. No. It, it was, was like then intentional. It was like any time could yeah. give birth, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Dang. So, but he, and then like he like dyed his hair and had all this cash yeah. and like was being super shady. And anyway, he claims that he didn't do it. But then there's like all these weird circumstances. Mm. Like the house right across the street was robbed that day and oh. um, they they never found like any evidence of a struggle in the house and anyway there's like a there's like some stuff to like speculate it but it's an interesting case i'm not saying i don't think that he did it because i feel like most likely he probably did just when something's too mm-hmm. good to be true it often is and i think it's the opposite too right yeah like, if the dude's like the main suspect mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure he did it then. yeah now mm-hmm. granted innocent until proven guilty yeah like he's already mm-hmm. been proven guilty once right yeah like mm-hmm. um not saying our justice system isn't flawed and gets yeah. things wrong but yeah that's sketchy yeah that's mm-hmm. that's a crazy but california like got rid of the death penalty while he was on death row mm. and then they overturned his death penalty i believe anyway something like that anyway he's trying to get a new trial yeah and he i mean it was like early 2000s that all that happened so crazy we were yeah so it's been it's been a long time so early adolescence mm-hmm. okay what about you Allie? um well i've been watching like more Spooky kind of shit. Talking mushrooms. Um, <laughs> Good in, save. In, thanks. Um, instead of like true crime stuff, I yeah. follow the Oxygen Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. I get, and, I get stuff sent to me every so I, day. Like, see like crazy headlines that pop up like... Um, oh gosh, where well, does it take you place? Sent what, you sent me like three today. I did. Yeah, I got I one. While I was working. Because you don't appreciate it. That was one about like a leg and an arm that were inside something. Wasn't there? Yeah. Oh, so, the, the dude who was 
A father um, and son alerted local authorities near Barcelona on Saturday that after noticing a fetid smell coming from a local dinosaur yeah. statue, they made a grisly discovery. Yeah. Um, after tearing open a piece of the statue's leg, the father discovered a dead body wedged inside the hollow leg of the paper mache stegosaurus. That's so crazy. Yeah. When you sent that was the one you sent me today. I was like, <laughs> okay. It's yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. So I like see like little blurbs like that yeah. a lot, and I'm like, oh, okay. And if I think it's interesting enough, I'll read the article associated with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just watch a lot of like ghost hunting. Yeah, stuff, I know you do. So, um, <laughs> nobody you know, likes it's, it but me. It's really interesting because I, I mean, a while back I watched uh, a movie on John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. Remember and, um. I found it really interesting that he was a well-respected member of society. He, you know, Mm -hmm. had his own business. He hired people who needed second chances. Mm -hmm. He, I mean, also did other things to them. You know, (laughs) they disappear. Um, He uh, dressed up as a clown for like charity events and stuff for little kids. And um, turns out his wife finds um, pornographic material of the the same sexual orientation as him and she freaks out and tries to leave him and i think does and at that point he's already got 33 bodies under Mm -hmm. his house Mm -hmm. and the neighbors are complaining about the smell and he's oh it's just uh it's 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 a bunch of raccoons yeah and dumps lie on it and stuff and uh you know i think i think the whole thing's really interesting and i you know anytime i go to a bookstore i look for um Something about Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy. Really? Yeah, you know, I I would love to read more, but I want to read like real book. I don't want to. <laughs> I want to read books. I don't want to read online stuff about yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, it and it's kind of the same way I felt about Charles Manson growing mm-hmm. up. You know, you can go online and read whatever you want, mm-hmm. but yeah. I read Helter Skelter, who was written, er, which was written by the the prosecuting attorney mm-hmm. and the cop that arrested him. Yeah. Um. And that was so good. It was so interesting. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason why I got into Charles Manson was because it was the taboo thing, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, that's part of the reason why I was so, I, I think, you know, I, I wanted our uh, main artwork to be Charles Manson because uh-huh. it it really is taboo, but he didn't actually kill anyone. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I I find that super fascinating as well. Like every good cult leader. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he he doesn't do the heavy lifting. No. Um, yeah. So I I always look for I've been looking for those for a little mm-hmm. while now, and I would love to read um, the graphic novel My Friend Dahmer, mm-hmm. um, which I I mean I watched that movie too, and it was yeah. really interesting. And um, when I was doing research, um on that because i was trying to figure out what the inspiration was and if it was real and Mm -hmm. it is it was a kid he went to high school with who was into like cartooning and and drew random cartoons of jeffrey dahmer doing stupid random crap and wow um like he was part of their friend group Hmm. um but as only as the joke though like he he was the person they treated like crap Mm -hmm. and laughed at and got to do stupid things so yeah. they could laugh at him. And he thought that they were laughing with him, not at him. That mm-hmm. just makes me really sad. Well, I mean. But I, I, yeah, I think that's a trait of people like that, though. For sure. I mm-hmm. think, yeah. People like that. Yeah. Like, 
the lady with the pearls at the store or something. Yeah, yeah I don't know what I just sounded like, but it felt very judgmental. I'm sorry. We know you're not really. I'm like not that. that like that. Clutching the pearls. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think we should get started with with our case today, and uh-huh. and I think with that, I want to reiterate last time we had talked about how we're going to f- start focusing on um, like one one true crime case at a time, mm-hmm. and we were going to do a couple um couple like two or three parters and uh we're gonna start with the one that melissa finds i think the most fascinating Mm -hmm. so definitely um so i'm glad you said that because i think it's important to talk about why this case is fascinating to me and why i'm so yeah intrigued by it and there's a couple there's a couple of big reasons um spoiler alert i'm doing ted bundy I am covering Ted Bundy. Oh, yeah. That's, that's uh, that, that could be sketchy. I'm covering Ted Bundy. Um, covering it, what? Oh, my God. Okay. My research. <laughs> uh, um, okay. And there's, this is just a case that I've been really interested in for a really long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. First and foremost, I grew up in the greater Seattle area. Um, and if you've been around, sorry, I'm going to repeat a story that I know I've told probably three times, but, um, I went to, um, a community college while I was still in high school and I was definitely one of those people that was like super young and naive and like I would do, then I was, this was before (laughs) I was into true crime, but, um, I would like help people or like, you know, whatever. Pull over for hitchhikers. I'm sure. Oh no, I've never done that before. Oh my God. Um, but nope. my dad was like making all these comments about how, you know, if there's a guy who looks like he's hurt and he's on crutches, like don't help him at school. If there's a guy who is claiming that like his arm hurts or he needs help carrying stuff to his car, don't do it at school. Yeah. And he was like, that's Ted Bundy. That's just a Ted Bundy tactic. And so I legitimately, my poor baby 17 year old brain. Oh, no thought that Ted Bundy was made up like that my dad was like trying to just scare me into like, like the not like the right? yeah, yeah exactly oh. and then my mind got blown when I was like no that's a real person so there's that um and once I learned that like he was that he was real and in an area where I grew up in and knew that's just kind of fascinating because he is one of the most notorious serial killers yeah. probably in American history I mm-hmm. I mean in the top five for sure of American history of like, oh, well, 100%. just like well known because his case was so big and s- yeah. astonishing. Yeah. Um, the second reason I find it fascinating is because he doesn't fit what you picture a killer being Mm-mm. like you don't picture this charming. I mean, I, for the time period, for good, the 70s, good, good looking, good looking man, looking right? man yeah. to be like this guy that you have to be terrified of. Um, and, he is a monster yeah i mean deep down on the inside and when you whenever you like watch footage of him at least i think and maybe it's just like a maybe it's that bleeding heart type thing but it's hard not to be charmed by him or feel bad for him um even knowing what he did you're like oh this poor guy like he just seems so innocent and humble and he sometimes sometimes not (laughs) but sometimes he can put it put on a show yeah um and that being said, I dated somebody who I'm he I'm not calling this person. <laughs> Number one, I'm not saying that he sexually assaulted people. Number two, I'm not saying he murdered people. But 
um, was a chameleon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And could fit into whatever groups he wanted to. And that's yeah. a very Ted Bundy-ish thing. For and, sure. Um, that just like piqued my interest even more because yeah. I'm like, again, not that I think he did those sorts of things to women, but mm-hmm. like seeing the type of damage just emotionally that yeah. a person like that can do on mm-hmm. people firsthand yeah. um, is really interesting. And so to think about the psychological aspect of all of it. But mm-hmm. anyway, it's a f- for sure going to be a two-parter. <laughs> uh, if not three. Um, <laughs> if not three, it's it's a lot of information and I'm really nervous about it because it's so covered mm-hmm. and it's a lot of things about him are so well done. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but because he is charming, it's hard to tell his story and not make him seem like a hero in, yeah, in yeah. its own way. And I think a lot of times when we talk about true crime, we focus so much on the killer that we tend to like honor the killer and hold them above the victims. Yeah. And he is somebody who it's because this case is so involved, it's hard not to talk about him in a way that sounds like you're honoring yeah. him and who he is. So. Which- mm-hmm. I think we should give that disclaimer. Obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. Right. Obviously, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. He is an awful human being. Yes. Um. And I, I think that... I, and and I, I will say, I think that people that don't understand true crime, mm-hmm. I think that that's when it becomes an issue. But yeah. if you like a true mm-hmm. crime, for the most part, that's kind of like... that. That's just how it is. Everyone yeah. knows that you're not really... You're not glorifying them for what yeah. they did. You're not... You're not putting them above the the people that they murdered or yeah. anything like that. So yeah. Um, but yeah. But always a good reminder. For sure, we're not <laughs> pieces of crap. Bundy is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so t- whoa, I keep on hitting my microphone. Um, for my research today, I used a bunch of different things. I relied really heavily on um, Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, which yeah. is a fascinating book because she worked and knew Ted Bundy well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Anne Rule is a great writer anyway, and this one was on Kindle Unlimited. So if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free for you to read, um, which is how I read it. Um, and it's really, it's super interesting um, to see from somebody who knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you read it recently? I went back through it okay. on my Kindle a little bit. Well, I'm, today. I'm just asking because like we talked yesterday yeah. and I was like, did you read that whole book overnight? No, like, oh my gosh. no. <laughs> I read the whole thing two years ago. Okay. So it, I, but I skimmed no, it for sure. yeah. names. Mm-hmm. Um, I had used a couple oxygen.com articles. Shout out to Ali nice. um, <laughs> by <laughs> Gina Tron and Jill Saderstrom. Um, there was a really interesting article about America's faulty perception of crime rates from the mm. Brennan Center for Justice by Lauren Brooke Eisen. Crime Piper blog, which I think was a blog spot blog. Erin um, Banks, I believe is the name of the person, but she wrote a bunch of information down about all of the victims of Ted Bundy. Okay. Okay. Um, Wikipedia articles. Um there were two really interesting biography.com articles, both by Sarah Kettler. One was called Inside Ted Bundy's Troubled and Disturbing Childhood. And the other was called How Ted Bundy's, Bundy's Education Facilitated His Career as a Serial Killer. Oh, um, yeah. And then the last one, which again, I, 
I maybe should ask for a sponsorship from some of these things, but um, is Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, which is on Netflix. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and that is a really well done documentary because it uses actual interview tapes that they mm-hmm. did with him while he was waiting yeah. on death row um, as he was explaining. They finally got him to talk about it. He, yeah. he and um, it's just really interesting to hear in his own words. He talks about himself in third person. Mm. Um, and he'll say like, well, the perpetrator, well, this type of person would do this. Yeah. So even when he was like obviously convicted and in jail and awaiting yeah. death, you know, death row, um, he was still disassociating yeah. himself from it. it. It's really fascinating. Well, imagine that's that's got to be the only way for someone who knows that they're going to die from doing, you know, making the choices they made. Mm-hmm. It's the only way for them to actually survive until the day they die. Right. Yeah. And not give up. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and for somebody who thought they won, for sure. Yeah, yeah that too. That too. Um, well, Outsmarted he, he, everyone. Yeah, he always thought he was smarter than oh, everybody yeah. else. Oh, yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Even way back, which I guess that means I'll get into it. So, Ted Bundy. Um, I did this a little bit different this time in hopes that I don't say the word um as I'm reading bullet <laughs> notes over and over and over again. So, if it sounds a little scripted, I wrote it a little bit more scripted for myself to hopefully save you the pain of I'll listening just say, to me. Um, randomly. Yeah. I've already said it a bunch of times in this unscripted part. I've been noticing it. So, um, we should just get a bell and do what like Toastmasters does. <laughs> and, like, you know, every time someone says um. Cool. We're going to traumatize our audience. <laughs> yeah. They're going to so, hate listening yeah. to It'll us. It'll be like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> they go to a cafe and hear it. Who's that on? Yeah, who did it? Okay. Here we go. Um, see, look, I was going to start it with, um, okay, I can't. Anyway, the 1970s was a bit of tumultu- a tumultuous time in American history. There was Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. Which was destroying Americans' trust. The Vietnam War was still going on. Mm -hmm. There was a huge sexual power and identity movement as women were fighting for equality. Mm -hmm. That actually is probably a huge factor in why some of these crimes even happened. Oh, for sure. The landmark case of Roe versus Wade was happening. Mm -hmm. And the death of Elvis Presley escalated rising distrust and criminalization of drug use in the American public. And amidst all of these national issues was an alarming rise in violent criminal activity among Americans. From 1960 to 1970, the rate of violent crimes had increased in America by 126%. Wow. With a 62% rise in murders and a rise in instances of sexual assault and rape. But perhaps the most concerning part about that is that there was an insane rise in violent crimes where there was no motivation. Mm -hmm. Meaning prior to the 70s, most crimes were pretty like open and shut cases. You knew it was the spouse who was jealous or that there was a money issue or home defense. And there wasn't very many crimes that were being committed, especially murders, that were being committed amongst people who didn't know each other. Okay. So you could really easily track down who most likely was the killer based on who did they have connections with and who had a vendetta against the victim. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, it's kind of crazy how as humanity goes on, it becomes more and more and more common for for there to be crimes where the victim and the perpetrator don't know each other in any way. They've never met before. Mm And uh, like in more modern history, it's more common. Um, So 
a lot of times it was like a crime of passion or something like that. And this mm -hmm. is becoming a scary thing because you don't know yeah. and you feel unsafe. You can mm -hmm. be killed by a complete stranger. And so the 70s brought a rise in what we would know as serial murder or serial killers, which interestingly enough, it's sorry. not people killing breakfast cereal. No, <laughs> but <laughs> weird tangent that I'm going to go on. There's there's this thing going around that, well, it's like a common thing that people yeah. talk about that Ted Bundy and some of these other people in this time frame are the mm -hmm. reason that the term serial killer even became a term. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I learned that that's a lie. Mm -hmm. That the FBI didn't, that our FBI didn't term, term serial killer. Like yeah. it had already been used in the United Kingdom, in mm -hmm. Germany, and like a couple other places. Yeah. Which I guess isn't shocking that that's a lie, but I it just kind of ruined my perception we're, of. We're really good at ripping things off and taking yeah, credit for them. For so, real. yay for America. I, mean, I think technically one of the first recognized serial killers was like Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Uh, for instance. But, yeah. And that was in London. Obviously. Yeah. So, as far as violent crime goes, in 1971, Charles Manson and his family were convicted family um, Quote, family. were convicted in the brutal murders of actress Sharon Tate and six other individuals mm -hmm. from 1976 to 1977 the son of Sam was terrorizing New York City yeah. shooting um, random women yeah to the point where women with long brown hair were cutting their hair and dyeing it blonde because that mm -hmm. was his yeah. victim of choice Los Angeles was living in fear of the Hillside Strangler from 1977 to 1978, who killed at least 12 individuals and ended up being two people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've already covered a lot of this. John Wayne Gacy killed 33 young men during the 70s. Yeah. And so there's all these people. And of course, there's Ted Bundy, who raped and murdered young women across the country, becoming one of the most infamous serial killers in our history. And also one of the strangest because he doesn't seem to fit the profile that everyone expects. Yeah, when you when you look at a picture of all of the people you just said, mm -hmm. right? They're all so different. Mm -hmm. And even I would say John Wayne Gacy didn't either. Yeah. Um, but for everyone else, out of out of everyone you just named, mm -hmm. those two were not the the stereotype right mm -hmm. yeah um that yeah it's so interesting, it's interesting that i mean even even looking at jeffrey dahmer mm -hmm. you know he wasn't dirty like gross mm -hmm. he didn't look like a hippie or anything but when you looked at him and you like you look him like straight on and you mm -hmm. see his profile and mm -hmm. his glasses he looks creepy as shit. Well, it's, like, it's really interesting that you say that, though, too, because, like, if you actually go back through history, like, and you look at pictures of, like, H.H. H. Holmes. For sure, mm -hmm. yeah. And stuff like that. And, I mean, even we, like, I can't remember who they finally settled on was the most likely suspect to be Jack the Ripper, but most likely he was a surgeon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, and, and again. And so uh, respectable, quote unquote, yeah. Yeah. members of society. Yeah. Well, but we're, you know, we're talking about the 70s, mm -hmm. right? Like, Well, everyone was kind of dirty in the I 70s. I was going to say the 60s and <laughs> 70s were full of hippies and, and, I mean, drugs were huge and it was, all, all of this stuff, yeah. right? There was and, a lot going on. Oh, there sure. was a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on now in a totally different sense, too. But well, yeah, the crazy thing mm -hmm. is a lot of this stuff is coming up now. Yeah, it's right? just yeah. a cycle. Absolutely. Which, yay for life. Yeah. Anyway. So cyclical nature. Yep. You're cyclical. <laughs> JK. That sounds really weird. Shh. I was kidding. <laughs> you guys are mean. Back to Bundy. Anyway. 
On November 24th, 1946, Eleanor Louise Cowell, who simply went by Louise, gave birth to her son Theodore Robert Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Maternity Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont, at the young age of 22. Louise claimed that she had been seduced and then abandoned by a young army veteran, but instead of naming Theodore's father, father, she simply filled in unknown on the birth certificate. And Ted would end up spending his first two months of life at the Elizabeth Lund maternity home while Louise debated whether or not she wanted to give her child up for adoption. Oh, dang. So she had him and left him there. When her father, Sam Cowell, heard of her predicament, he insisted that Louise come back home and raise Ted with the family in Philadelphia, which she ended up accepting. The Cowell home was not necessarily an idyllic place to raise a child, though. Louise's mother suffered suffered from severe depression and agoraphobia, which is like your, the fear of like leaving, you know, leave. and going yeah. out. Um, and her father, Sam, was known for his temper, which he would take out on any person or animal in his path. Of course. Ted was raised there to believe that Louise was actually his sister and that Mm -hmm. he was just simply one of the Cowell siblings. Though he would admit later on in life that he had put together that she was likely his mother based on the 20-year age gap and the fact that she was the primary caregiver for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know how early on he put that together, but I mean, kids are smart, though. Oh, for sure. You know. Yeah. They're smart or dumb as rocks. This this is... (laughs) There's no in-between sometimes, but, you know, it's fine. (laughs) During his toddler years, Ted began to develop some behaviors that were atypical for a young child, but consistent with somebody who has been raised around abuse and violence. And Sam Cowell being the violent man that he is, there's talk about that there was most likely some sort of physical abuse at least witnessed Mm -hmm. and likely some sort of psychological abuse going on. Yeah. One of his aunts would later recall a moment where she woke up to a toddler Ted placing knives next to her sleeping body, but notes that nobody did anything about it. It was just kind of something that they moved on from. That's normal, right? Mm-hmm. In 1950, Louise oh. decides it's time to escape the abuse and violence of her father and move across the country to Tacoma, Washington, where she takes a job as a secretary for the University of Puget Sound and is able to find a home near her uncle, who's a music educator in the area. There's speculation um, because shortly before moving, she changed Ted's last name to Nelson, presumably to avoid letting people know that he was an illegitimate child. Mm -hmm. And which is so, so sad that just because she wasn't married when she had him, that there's all this stigma against her and against him. Yeah. Yeah. But there, as far as like public knowledge, what's been released, there have been speculations about who Ted's, biological father is okay. mm-hmm. nothing has ever been confirmed yeah. and we don't know if he knew who it was there are two names of different men but people argue that if you were really in love with somebody who abandoned you when you got pregnant would you really want to give up that child would yeah. that be something you could do so easily mm-hmm. there's also speculation that there's a chance that because of his nature that her father yeah. sexually yeah. assaulted her and, and that's what i had heard and that ted was a product of that mm-hmm. but there's it's never been confirmed any yeah. of it has never been confirmed so which is horrible but i who knows what he knew mm-hmm. Louise takes this move, though, as an opportunity to have a fresh start and live the life that she never could back home. Shortly after moving to Tacoma, she meets and falls in love with Johnny Bundy, who's a cook at a nearby army hospital. And her and Johnny are married in 1951, much to Ted's dismay. And Johnny makes a decision to officially adopt Ted, legally changing his name to Theodore Robert Bundy, a name that will later become known across the nation. 
Though the Bundys are poor and a working class family, they do the best they can to create a loving home for Ted and the four children that they end up having together. They portray an image of the perfect 1950s family. Oh, wow. They are active in the local Methodist church. The children are all, all involved in Boy Scouts and Brownies. And love appears to be abundant in their home. As an adult, Ted himself recalled a fairly typical childhood. He spoke of his friends and their antics playing football with the neighbor kids. He talks about catching frogs and fish and being a bit of an academic himself. Though he admits to being shy and introverted and somewhat straight-laced, not really having girlfriends yeah. or drinking or doing anything like that, mm -hmm. he makes it clear that he was never short of friends and claims that, quote, it wasn't that I disliked women or was afraid of them. It was that I honestly didn't have an inkling of what to do with them. Mm. So... So even, you know, maybe at that age, women were more considered objects. Mm -hmm. it, it's just interest. It's yeah. a very interesting because despite his like perfect recollection, recollection of his own childhood, mm -hmm. others who knew him and who were close to him remember a much more troubled childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, he, it sounds like he was being made fun of by some sort of relative for being illegitimate and being mm. bullied about that. And at, he didn't necessarily believe it because he didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And he ended up finding his birth certificate on his oh, own and no. seeing that it said unknown. And that that was you know something that people later on were thinking could be kind of a earth yeah. shattering thing. And he claimed that it really wasn't that big of a deal to him, mm -hmm. but I find that hard to believe. So he, he was bullied for being illegitimate. He was bullied for hailing from a poor family in a town of haves and have nots where he was definitely a have not. And he also struggled with a speech impediment, which was fuel for bullies against him. Though the Bundy family was tight knit, Ted's relationship with his mother and stepfather was much more strained. He resented his father for the low status in life, for being a working class, yeah. you know, not very smart, not educated in Ted's mind, um, man. And it, he would throw temper tantrums in his younger years. And as he got older, it would become physical and he would intentionally provoke his stepfather into fighting mm -hmm. because of this yeah. weird, strained relationship. And his mother, I believe it was, recalled when he was little, like throwing a major temper tantrum in a Sears and purposefully like wetting his pants and screaming and just freaking out because of his stepfather, mm -hmm. that it was just kind of weird from the beginning yeah. that there was mm -hmm. some sort of distance. Though much less discussed, he never seemed to get over the shame and turmoil that he felt his mother had put him through when he was a child. And I, it breaks my heart for both of them. What a terrible position she was put in, yeah. first yeah. of all. And you can argue she did it, she maybe did it willingly, and that was a consequence of her actions, right? But um, just the fact that there was such stigma, and she, mm -hmm. she had to make that decision. She yeah. had to make a decision whether or not to keep her child, mm -hmm. knowing that he was going to be judged for being illegitimate, knowing that she was going to be judged for him being illegitimate. And I wonder if he was ever able to feel any empathy for that situation, mm -hmm. or if it was just the hurt of, my mother is so ashamed of me. She has to pretend to be my sister. My mother is so ashamed of me. Yeah. She changes yeah. my name. My mother's, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and like, you know, we all have worked with kids. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it really breaks your heart thinking of, 
like the child that was mm-hmm. and being like what if someone had like maybe intervened well yeah. again um, right the 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 phrase thrown out a lot of the time is one caring adult one mm-hmm. relationship one healthy relationship with a caring adult can change uh the trajectory that a child's life goes mm-hmm. in right yeah and it makes me think not that his mom didn't love him mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. If if something had been different when he mm-hmm. was younger, mm-hmm. would any of this happen? Yeah, right. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which she had given him up for adoption, yeah. and mm-hmm. he had gone to a different home. Not saying that would have been better or worse. Yeah, or it would have changed but anything. It, but it could have. But I, it could have yeah. at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, and also thinking about the time that he was, um, that he was growing up in. Um, you know, they didn't talk about like trauma or Uh anything like that they just buried that shit real deep and just moved on was trauma even real then (laughs) (laughs) i mean some people still don't think that trauma is real but you know oh i almost said something and i'm glad i didn't yeah i'm glad you didn't too Mm -hmm. so in addition to the hurts that ted experienced as a child he was somewhat of a social outcast as he grew up which is in direct opposition to the image we have of him as an adult he didn't seem to have many friends and never really dated anybody. What he perceived as shyness appeared to be a more closeted and standoffish personality to his mm-hmm. peers. Mm-hmm. He was a child who seemed to struggle with everything from social relationships to academics and even physical tasks. And again, in direct opposition of what he believes about his own childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those who grew up with Ted also remember more bizarre and violent tendencies, such as purposefully trying to scare others and hitting other children with sticks and rocks. Most notable among his violent tendencies was the building of tiger traps. Oh, yeah. So young Ted would go out into the woods where the neighborhood children played and dig large holes. Inside of these holes, he would place wooden stakes, which he had meticulously sharpened, and then cover it up with dirt and brush so Mm -hmm. that no one was aware of what... Great. Mm -hmm. Lied beneath, lays beneath, lies beneath. Anyway, that was a movie. Unsuspecting (laughs) animals... Yes. Unsuspecting animals and victims who were playing in the woods would walk over the brush only to fall in and be impaled. Impaled. And he never killed a human, but he did severely wound at least one of the neighborhood children Mm -hmm. with it. During his teen years, he also developed some outrageous sexual behaviors and interests. And so though he stayed away from women in real life, he was extremely interested in erotic images and became the neighborhood's peeping Tom. And while he was in prison later in life, he expressed that though the images started out rather innocently, he began to develop interests in more violent images and sexual situations such as rape and bondage. And it became more of a sex as power scenario. Mm -hmm. His addiction went as far as him being caught multiple times masturbating in semi-public places. And I say semi-public because it was a public place, but it'd be like the janitor's closet Mm. at the school. So he would find a private place in a public place. Mm. Still public, but... Right. um, Still super inappropriate. Yes. Wait. It is? Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, who knows how many teenage boys have been in school or something in the closet? No, I don't want to know. Let's move on. So, (laughs) as an aside, all of these things today are things that we view as precursors to killing behavior the sexual Mm -hmm. obsession, violence, the strange violence against, you know, children and animals, all these things. Mm -hmm. Peeping Tom behavior is all considered precursors to more violent crimes. Mm hmm. 
But upon graduating from high school in 1965, he decides to enroll at the University of Puget Sound to begin his college career. He had ambitions of becoming something affluent, such as the president, and he greatly wanted to impress people around him, likely because of the fact that he was an outcast and felt like he was less than. Proving people wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But college wasn't necessarily smooth for him. Though he began at the University of Puget Sound, where he wished to pursue a degree in Chinese, of all things, <laughs> uh, he would end up transferring to the University of Washington and then Temple University before once again returning to the University of Washington, where he would ultimately graduate with distinction and a degree in psychology in 1972. Mm. Several times along the way, he dropped out for periods of time or would stop attending class, but he still made it. Mm-hmm. While enrolled at the University of Washington in 1967, he would meet his first serious girlfriend, Diane Edwards. Diane, who was originally from California, represented everything that Ted wanted in life, wealth, beauty, and affluence. Mm -hmm. He became hyper fixated on this relationship with her and was really obsessed with her. And many think that he had fallen much harder for her than she ever really did for him. For her, it was a more casual thing. Mm -hmm. And for him, it was like the love of his life. Mm -hmm. Anne Rule even speculated that he probably lost his virginity to her, which increased that kind of attachment yeah. between him yeah. and Diane. And also that it was a contributing factor to his difficulties in school because he was so focused on this relationship and being a part of it that he didn't fulfill other obligations in his life. Mm-hmm. But when Diane graduated in 1968, she ended up moving back to California where it became difficult for the two of them to maintain a long-distance relationship. Ted remembered that the letters became less and less frequent before she ultimately ended the relationship, which he believed was due to his lack of direction in life and poor finances because he had dropped out and was just kind of doing whatever menial job would pop up. Unbeknownst to Diane, her relationship with Ted would end up having a lasting impact, and not just for him, but for pretty much everybody in the Seattle area. The big thing that he knows is that he wants revenge on Diane. And he verbalizes that he wants revenge and he wants to show her that he can be all the things that he thinks she thinks he isn't. Yeah. It was the breakup with Diane that spurred his re-enrollment in college to pursue a degree in psychology, which is likely a degree that aided him in his manipulation and abduction of young women. For sure. It was also the breakup that would ultimately lead him down a path to gain more influence in the world around him. He ended up becoming involved in politics after this, working as a volunteer in a campaign for the Republican candidate for governor at the time, Daniel J. Evans. And his work on the campaign led him into higher social circles. And what people really noted about him was that he could fit in anywhere and make make friends anywhere. And he worked during this time as an operator at a suicide hotline Mm -hmm. alongside Ann Rule in Mm -hmm. the Seattle area. And... He also accepted a position with the Seattle Crime Commission during this time period where he worked on a task force specifically studying crimes against women in the Seattle area. And again, we talk about like different life paths and how maybe one little change could have changed everything. Yeah. And both of those jobs, I think, are really key to him becoming who he was. Yeah. Oh, for Mm -hmm. sure. They have to have been. Yeah. The suicide hotline and rule claims he was amazing. Yeah. And I can't help but think being someone who in my younger life had suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. that is a very vulnerable thing to open up to people about. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've never called a hotline before, 
but I imagine that it's really hard to spill your personal life to a stranger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for him to A, be able to coax people through such a thing and B, mm -hmm. be able to figure out what is making people vulnerable, they're most vulnerable that they've ever yeah. been. I can't imagine how that was used against women later on. Yeah. And the Seattle Crimes Commission, they said like he got to look at statistics of what the police were doing wrong, mm -hmm. what people were getting away with, yeah. Yeah. what sort of things they couldn't trace. When there wasn't fingerprints, he knew he knew how likely the chance was of him getting away with it. And so mm -hmm. he got to see all these inner workings that helped him essentially to prey upon women and then get away with it. I mean yeah. from these jobs. Mm -hmm. Um it's also really interesting because his work and connections in the political party inspired him to do and gain some of the things that we know him for. There's a guy, I believe it's either Marvin or Marlin, but that worked in the campaign with him. And they were, they kind of befriended each other. And mm. Marlin had a Volkswagen bug. Mm. And he said in the Ted Bundy tape documentary that he specifically remembers Ted being obsessed with the Volkswagen and thinking it was so cool. And especially because it had, I don't know what they're actually called, the oh shit bars. Yeah. And he was like fascinated with the fact that it had this bar in it. Mm -hmm. And like how looking back, that was such a weird thing to be yeah. so fascinated with. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And so knowing yeah. what he did and knowing what purpose that bar probably used is kind of yeah. incredible. But Ted ended up going out and buying himself this orangey burnt brown, metallic brown Volkswagen mm -hmm. bug. And Marlon is also the one who decides that he's going to go to law school. And when he says that, Ted decides he's also going to go to law school. And Ted takes the LSATs, which I don't know what those are, but I guess it's, it's like to get in SATs for law school, essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And doesn't do very well. Of course not. Um, and it very much reminds me of, you know, the whole story, story of Hitler feeling... Not that him and Hitler are the same again. They're both bad people, but they're not the same. Um, of Hitler feeling so rejected by the art schools yeah. and how that just spurred, you know, like this whole different evil side of him. And mm -hmm. it seems to be Ted feel like a f field <laughs> felt like a failure. And like that really upset him that he mm -hmm. wasn't good enough for these yeah. law schools. So, so it's kind of interesting. LSATs are the law school admissions tests. Okay. So he didn't do good on that. It was way easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, that is way easier. Um, finally, the end of the relationship with Diane, the last big factor that it ends up doing is it leads Ted to move on. And he gets led to Elizabeth Klopfer. Klopfer I can never say her last name right. But she becomes his long-term on-again, off-again girlfriend, which is the one that pretty much, I mean, I don't know. I can never remember the name of that Zac Efron movie yeah. but that's it's her that yeah. that's based on in her relationship mm -hmm. with him her side of the her side of the story i guess mm -hmm. um apparently though for ted just bettering himself moving on you know proving he can do all these things isn't good enough mm -hmm. and so in the summer of 1973 he reaches out to diane the okay. woman who broke his heart mm -hmm. dun, dun, dun. the couple meets up in california and diane is shocked amazed impressed he's grown up so much he's such a great man he's improving himself you know he's doing all these things so wonderful and their relationship becomes a thing again mm -hmm. and they 
quickly rebuild again this is summer 1973 and by the christmas season yeah. they're engaged to be married and they are going to spend the rest of their lives together and she's you know proud of who he is and what he's become yeah they're still long distance so mm-hmm. right after christmas she flies up to seattle to visit and she relays that he was really like cold and standoffish and he wasn't really receptive to her being there and it was kind of this weird thing for two people who are in love and engaged yeah so she goes back home and she's writing him and he's not responding Mm -hmm. and she eventually gets super fed up and she calls him in february of 1974 and she's angry about about all this behavior and she's wanting to know you know why would you why are you not talking to me we're supposed to be married we're supposed to be happy yeah i don't know what's going on and she says that he responded in a calm, monotone voice, Diane, I have no idea what you mean, and hung up the phone call. And that's the last she ever heard from him. Well, I mean, in reality, <laughs> she's lucky if she never heard from yeah, him, right? Yeah. I mean, but it ends up to be this whole unraveling of this relationship that mm-hmm. kind of spells disaster for women across yeah. the country because mm-hmm. that's their phone call was in February 1974. And his first known attack is January 1974. Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially, he put on this entire act to get her to fall in love with him so he could do exactly what he felt she did yeah, to him. for sure. Yeah. In the exact same way. Just stop talking and yeah. then end it um, as if it was as if he, she meant nothing. Yeah. And the time and effort to do that is... I was going to use the word insane, but I guess that's a good word for him. I, I was going to say, I think that that word's very apropos. Yeah. I mean. mm-hmm. So um, today I'm going to talk about his 1974 crime spree. Okay. And then we'll kind of stop where that ends because it's a lot and yeah. partly because it's really heavy and partly just because it's a lot of information. Yeah. Um, we don't want this to be a five hour podcast. No, <laughs> and it could be. I mean, it with all the information, it very be. well could be. So mm-hmm. um I'm just going to go through in chronological order kind of what happened in 1974 in the Seattle, greater Seattle area. Mm -hmm. So Karen Sparks is the first victim of Ted Bundy. Early in the morning of January 4th, 1974, Karen Sparks was reading in the basement bedroom of a home that she shared with her three male friends at the University of Washington Mm -hmm. campus. Um, University of Washington campus is literally like the college campus and then it's like the city butts up right against it so where exactly the house was i'm not sure if it was like in a dorm or if it was in just a you know seattle house right by but i'm assuming it was just a house down the road well and i mean and that's crazy too because i mean we're we're looking at i mean major you know greater Mm -hmm. seattle area yeah that's that's crazy Mm -hmm. yeah um how many people were around yeah because even then it was super populated Mm -hmm. in that area Mm -hmm. and lots of call i mean college kids who are out all times of the night yeah Mm -hmm. but um as she's reading something she's something in her bedroom window catches her eye and remember this is like a basement bedroom so it's you know i mean you can picture i'm sure the windows but um when she turns to look she sees a man who's staring straight at her but in a flash he's gone and so she plays the game that i'm sure we all play like that was probably just my imagination it wasn't real real because it's one o'clock in the morning yeah um and then she's 
thinking about it and she's like well and i live with three men so nobody would dare attack me in my own home Mm -hmm. and so soon after she goes to sleep and that night or early morning she ends up being brutally attacked in her bed karen's head was so badly beaten and battered with the front with the primary focus on the left side of her face Mm -hmm. and she was sexually assaulted with a metal object that was shoved so far up her vagina that ended up splitting her bladder oh my god The attack continued until her roommate began talking in his sleep and the attacker fled at that point because he heard a man's voice on the other side of the wall. Mm. She ended up being found by one of her roommates unconscious and bleeding in her set in her bed at 7 p.m. The next night. So 12, 12 plus hours after the attack. And it wasn't until she arrived at the hospital that they realized the extent of the attack. He called 911 and then he called her parents and said she fell down the stairs i think it's really bad thinking she had fallen and then had enough energy to pull herself into the bed yeah um so that's where they find you know the evidence of sexual assault and all of that Mm. and the attack ends up leaving her with 50 percent hearing loss and 40 percent vision loss from how badly she was beaten in the face oh my god when she awakes from a coma 10 days later, her roommate and her father are sitting next to her hospital bed and she asks them what happened and she realizes that she has no memory of the attack and is unable to identify a possible suspect. Mm. But as young women go missing in the area, they feel that it's likely that the same attacker that attacked her is responsible for yeah. the other women and that she really just had the sheer luck of the fact that her roommate talked in his sleep sleep, yeah and that that's probably the only reason that she ended up not going missing Mm -hmm. yeah then um shortly after comes linda ann healy linda ann healy was a young seattle native who grew up in a living home in 1970 she began college at the university of washington where she was pursuing a degree in psychology with the hopes of working with adolescents who had disabilities and mental health disorders During her college years, she started on an early morning radio job where she gave weather reports for local skiing areas and everybody, like she was this person that everybody knew and loved Mm -hmm. her bubbly personality on the early morning radio. Mm -hmm. On January 31st, 21 year old Linda went to a local tavern for some beers with friends before going home to talk to her boyfriend on the phone and hang out with her roommates. At about 12 o'clock AM on the morning of February 1st, so the first attack um, was middle of january oh no beginning january sorry january 4th so this is um, about a month later yeah Mm -hmm. um she decides it's time for her to go to bed so she goes downstairs to go to bed and this would be the last time that anybody would see her alive the next morning one of her sweet mates was woken up by her alarm going off at 5 30 which she thought was weird because she was a very punctual and on top of it person yeah so when the alarm's not shut off she goes to check on linda and finds the room empty but it's otherwise undisturbed Mm -hmm. so she shuts it off goes back to bed thinking she probably just didn't shut it off correctly yeah later that morning her roommates receive a call from the radio station saying that she never showed up to work but it isn't until they later learn that she didn't come to a family dinner that they become concerned and decide to investigate as they look around the house, they find that the back door to their home was unlocked and they discover blood on her sheets and nightgown, which leads them to call the police. Besides the traces of blood that were found on her sheets, police are unable to find any other clues or evidence about her disappearance and end up having the case go cold. Wow. Then on the evening of March 12th, 1974, Donna Gail Manson was on her way to a jazz concert at the Evergreen State College Library in Olympia, Washington. So for three 
hours away from Seattle, depending on when you go. Like two and a half. Yeah. You think that? Yeah. Some I was going to say, that, well, I just think of traffic. Mm. That's true. I was just thinking three, at least three, depend, and then longer if it's, because yeah. there's a um, Lewis McCord to... True, but it I wasn't don't know. as populated back then. Mm. So yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking. I, I used today's to live, traffic. I used to live down by Olympia. Someday. Oh yeah. And I, where where was it? Like Evergreen like, State College. Like an hour and a half, probably. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm surprised. And that's with traffic, I think. So. But that's wow. This is saying an hour. I don't believe an that. hour in ten minutes. But if that's no traffic. That, that's no, no traffic. No, 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 no. If there was traffic, it would pop mm-hmm. up on here yeah. no, with but, red. But what I'm saying is back then uh, specifically yeah. too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was very I wrong. Mean, I just assumed it would be way longer. But, but no, it feels, it especially feel, if you're in the car and you're having to sit in that, that traffic, traffic. It feels like forever. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I hate traffic. Um, mm. <laughs> so Donna has a really unique lifestyle where she would catch a bus or hitchhike and be gone for days on end and her friends would never know like when she was leaving or when she'd come back which isn't necessarily atypical of the time you'll see Mm -hmm. she had been attending all her classes irregularly and had taken up partying and smoking marijuana instead of going to class and at some point on her way to the library she was picked up by a stranger and never seen again she never makes it to the concert because of her transient lifestyle, though, she's not even reported missing until six days later. Oh, my God. Because uh, they just figured yeah. she went somewhere and yeah. there's no clues regarding her disappearance or her whereabouts. Mm-hmm. On April 17th, 1974, Susan Elaine Rancourt, who was 19, was doing her laundry after classes in um, Ellensburg, which is in central Washington. That's mm-hmm. far away. <laughs> she, That's like four hours. <laughs> She was extremely sweet and, and a reliable young girl, and she had been enrolled in what was what would now be kind of like their pre-med program at Central okay. Washington University. She was a star student, straight A's. She tutored her classmates in German and science, and she had lots of friends at school. Wow. And after the laundry, she was going she went to attend a meeting where she discussed the potential opportunity of becoming a dorm advisor. And after the meeting, she had plans to see a German language film with a friend, but she never made it to the movie theater Mm. Um, knowing that their daughter would never just disappear on them and her her dad even said something to the effect of if it was one of our other kids we wouldn't be freaking out (laughs) because we would expect them to like go somewhere and not tell anyone where they were but just because of her demeanor they that was so unusual for her yeah so they immediately began to advocate for the police to find her and her abductor but with few clues and little information, the trail would soon go cold. That's so sad. There ends up later down the road being two women who come forward that on the night or on the day that she went missing, that they mm-hmm. were both approached by a man with a sling and a Volkswagen bug who was asking them to help him carry books to his car. Mm-hmm. One of them, he said, why don't you get in the car with me after they made it there? And she said no, and then he insisted, and she literally dropped the books and ran, mm-hmm. which is Good smart. For her. Yeah. Um, and then the other girl felt like he didn't seem like he was really hurt, and it mm. like her something went off. Mm-hmm. And her spidey sense was yeah. tingling. Yeah. You should always listen to your instincts. Yes, always. Everyone has spidey senses. Yes. Yeah. And so she helped him but wouldn't let him go behind her and Mm. it's later found out that like he usually would attack from behind as many of those many criminals seem to do yeah um and 
then when they got to the car, he dropped his keys and wanted her to bend down because he was hurt and pick up the keys. And she was like, no, let's both stand back. And I bet you we can find them if we both stand back. And so anyway, two other women were also approached and Mm -hmm. made it. But that wasn't even connected until much further down the road. On May 6th, 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks was taken from the Oregon State University campus in Corvallis, Oregon. Several of her friends saw her on her way to the dining hall at about 11 o'clock p.m. for what was her usual late dinner. Though the friends had reported that she'd been struggling emotionally and had taken up drinking, they didn't believe that she would leave on her own accord. Mm -hmm. And like many of the others, there were few clues. She just pretty much seemed to vanish and she was never heard from again. Wow. June 1974, it starts on the night of May 31st. Um, Brenda Carol Ball, who was 22, was at the Highline Tavern in Burien, Washington, which was a place she visited frequently. Brenda had been attending Highline Community College, but had stopped attending about two weeks earlier and was kind of struggling with where she wanted to go in her life. So she was in a kind of rough spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She asked a friend for a ride home because they made it there until closing time. And the friend was going in the opposite direction, so he declined. And witnesses at the bar stated they saw her talking with a young man who was wearing a sling, but they were unable to provide any more information than that. Because, like Donna Manson, she was known to disappear for large amounts of time. And so her disappearance wasn't reported until almost three weeks later on June 17th, 1974. Hey, two days before my birthday. But like... 15 years or 15 years like longer than that (laughs) (laughs) um george ann hawkins 18 was a friendly outgoing girl who was a tacoma washington native her mother uh called her the pied piper because everybody would follow her around because she was just such a likable person Mm -hmm. and on the evening of june 10th she attends a party at the university of washington campus with one of her sorority sisters And it's the end of the semester, trimester, whatever they have, quarter. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But she's feeling nervous because she has a Spanish final the next day. And so Georgianne has a few drinks and then decides she's going to leave the party early. So she goes to tell her friend that she's planning to leave. And she's going to swing by her boyfriend's house on the way home to talk to him, say goodnight, and pick Mm -hmm. up some notes for the Spanish final so she can study. Um, What a responsible young woman. I know. And her boyfriend... It lives in a frat house that's just nine houses down from her sorority house. Oh, and so it's less than 100 feet between yeah. the two. So you could literally see like where yeah, if you yeah. were standing where on the sidewalk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she arrived at the frat house at about 1230 a.m. on June 11th. And she spent about a half hour there before leaving to do some last minute cramming. One of her roommates was waiting up for Georgian because Georgian had lost her keys several weeks before. And so she would come home and she'd throw rocks out the window yeah. and... She was always home by three. And so yeah. when three o'clock comes around and she's not home, the roommate gets scared and she goes to tell the um, house mother. Mm-hmm. The police get called at 745 a.m. And because of the many young women who had disappeared, they take it super seriously. They go through her stuff. They find that mm-hmm. nothing's missing but what was on her at the time. There's no sign of struggle. There's no sign that she got back in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nobody saw her because when she left, everyone went back inside the frat house and there was nobody else out on the street. She wore glasses or contacts, but because she'd Mm -hmm. been studying all day, she had taken her contacts out and wasn't wearing her glasses. Like her eyes were hurting, so she had taken them out. So they believe that she could have not seen somebody coming at her just because of 
her her vision and yeah once again there's no leads there's no trace of her yeah so then in July 1974, on the 14th, two different women go missing from Lake Sammamish State Park on the same day. I've been to that state park. <clears throat> the first woman who goes missing is Janice Ott, who was 23 and was a married probation caseworker in the King County Youth Service Center. Witnesses on the beach stated that they saw a man with a sling approach her while she was laying on the beach and asked for help with his sailboat and his car it was mm-hmm. had some story about how it was his father's sailboat and he needed to get it home or whatever and why he asked a young woman by herself i think is a question that in hindsight or just in the yeah. 2000s we would ask such a question but that didn't mm-hmm. seem to be but then maybe not i yeah, feel like i would concern. be like excuse me no. <laughs> yeah why do you um, think i would help you right like why what do you think i would be able to help you what about the big buff man playing frisbee down the beach like oh because you don't want to assault him and yeah. murder him yeah oh. <laughs> but not, so he, no he, he just not as much as you oh like. my gosh so he so asks her she responds that she doesn't want to leave her bike that she rode there and he assures her that there's room in his trunk for the bike and so after he says nope. that she agrees nope. uh, for the record a bike would never fit in the back of a volkswagen yeah yes literally never i can't a volkswagen imagine. also probably couldn't tow a boat but she probably didn't, didn't know, know that. what kind of vehicle it was. yeah so at, she goes off with him and as they're walking from the beach the witnesses hear her say hi i'm jan and the man responds hi i'm ted which oh, will wow. later become a really big deal dun, dun, dun. that little 30 second interaction yeah just four hours after janice Ott is approached at the beach denise mm-hmm. nasland who is a computer programming student disappears from the same park she was there having a picnic with her boyfriend and another couple and they had brought their dog and she had left the group and gone with her dog to use the restroom the dog later made its way back to the group but she was missing and there were no witnesses to what happened in her disappearance so like i said the lake sammamish disappearances finally give the police a breakthrough because previously they had no leads there's no fingerprints there's no aside from the blood at Mm -hmm. um linda healy's house there's no blood there's they believe that there's foul play but are Mm. all these women just running away because again this was this time where women were becoming more free and they were starting to hitchhike and do all these things and so it's like are they just feeling empowered and leaving Mm -hmm. um but in the seattle area at this point hitchhiking virtually stops Mm-hmm. nobody's doing that people are terrified because they don't know who or where someone's going to go missing next and because they have nothing else to go on police have been trying to go off patterns so they're looking at like satanic yeah you know groups they're looking at occult calendars and trying to figure mm-hmm. out um because there is a pattern and i can't remember exactly what it is but it's something like 26 26 30 30 like and it's a pattern in how many days between each one okay mm, okay um and so they're noticing these things and thinking, wow, this surely must line up with something because we have nothing else to go off of. Right. Because at some point you have to start be like grasping at straws because yeah. you want it to stop. Yeah. Obviously. Because this is nine, nine women in six months, seven months. Yeah. It's insane. Which is a, t- a ton of missing people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all in the same area. And who know? And well, 
I guess one of those women didn't go missing. But so mm-hmm. then you think about how many women go missing that are um, sex workers who people don't realize they're missing or yeah. who are all these things, you know, your There's mind nobody goes to report them. Yeah. Or they've been gone from home. And so the people that yeah. they know, you know, they're not mm-hmm. native to the area. It's it's kind of terrifying to think about how many others there probably could have been. Yeah. Yeah. But the witnesses overhearing the man introducing himself come forward to the police and finally give them a lead. So in addition to the people overhearing the man say, hi, my name is Ted, and seeing that the man was in a sling, mm-hmm. two or three, or three there, there was kind of conflicting numbers, but young women come forward stating that they had been approached by a man who introduced himself as Ted wearing a sling, mm-hmm. asking them to help him with his boat. And one of the women said she offer she said sure like i can help you and she made it all the way to his car which she says is a metallic brown volkswagen bug but she leaves because she sees there's no sailboat and she's like that's weird you're asking me to help with your sailboat and there's no sailboat so she walks off essentially yeah uh from the witnesses police are able to develop a composite sketch and the alleged abductor um has a name now and a picture Mm -hmm. and people who have any information about him are asked to come forward but they're not finding any like a lot of times when you ask people with information you get a lot of calls that go nowhere yeah and so they're getting all these calls that go nowhere and starting to lose hope when a woman calls in saying that she believes her boyfriend ted bundy could be responsible for the missing women in seattle Mm -hmm. and that's where i'll stop for today oh my gosh (laughs) cliffhanger dang i mean it really is crazy how how long it lasted, right? Like, mm-hmm. and we're only at nine. Mm-hmm. And at, he admitted to at least 30, but they believe it could be as many as 100 or more. Yeah, because yeah. again, you know, people, the people that, that went that missing that yeah, get reported who or who don't get reported, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's... Ugh. And some of these women... Two, they don't, you know, for example, the um, Oregon State University one, mm-hmm. they would have never necessarily made that connection had he not come forward and said, yes, this person. And he knows the names. Yeah. He can yeah. give the names of these people and remembers mm-hmm. the coverage, um, which mm-hmm. is, I think, incredibly haunting. But well, yeah, and it, it it shows how much pride he took in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm. And and then you go back and think like, okay, now what if he didn't care? Like, mm-hmm. what if what if he? I, I mean, we we look at like the the Green River Killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he forgot so like where yeah. he put so many of the bodies. He forgot oh, yeah. the identities of people because there are so many because because so of long. time, right? And mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. like it's I mean either way it's it's yeah. awful, but I mean like. Uh, it's it's a double-edged sword right it's yeah. either you you remember it and there's mm-hmm. an ego trip there mm-hmm. or you don't and it means nothing and that's just really shitty too yeah like, yeah um well and but i would also counter that with how many people did he not remember yeah oh for sure Absolutely. yeah exactly. i'm sure there's some that he that or that he just didn't want to admit to because mm-hmm. he thought that it would do something bad for him i don't yeah. know well i mean think about it like you know if they were prostitutes sex workers mm-hmm. or homeless people mm-hmm. like he had to start like this is all speculation of course but you all 
all these people they start with perfecting their yeah before they before, before they start they, doing stuff right? yeah. yeah and seeing what will work what won't work yeah yeah i mean it's just like with Dahmer and starting with animals right like mm-hmm. um but but even more so like the 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 what ifs right Mm -hmm. if he had started with homeless Mm -hmm. people or um sex workers yeah you know those aren't those people and i'm using quotes here so please don't take me seriously when i say this but Mm -hmm. like those people aren't high members of society Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't mean anything if they go missing so why remember them? yeah yeah because there's that homeless bias that we hear a lot about where people are just like oh well they're worthless because they don't contribute anything, which is not true. Or, or and even like, oh, they could use a half-used bottle of shampoo when in reality, that, like, you're Ugh. treating them like crap when mm-hmm. you do stuff like, like that. Yeah. Um, like, oh, I'll just give them my garbage, basically. Yeah. This thing I don't want anymore. Anyway. Anyway. And, but <laughs> And that is something that I debated talking about this time because as people look back on Ted's life there is a girl that goes missing when he's only 14 years old just on the street Mm -hmm. and she was never found they think that her body is likely underneath a cement road or parking lot you know something that was built at or I think it I and I didn't look into her because I decided to talk about it later but I Mm -hmm. so now I'm spoiling my own (laughs) stuff but um I believe that they were built they were repaving the road when she went missing. Oh. And so they think yeah. that she's somewhere underneath the road and there's all these little things that I mean it was a cold it still is considered a cold case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's things that line up that it would make sense that it was a young teenage yeah. person who did mm-hmm. it and so then you go to if he that was his first one and i use quotes with that because who knows right. yeah. Um, yeah but even just say it was his first one at 14 and he was killing women in such rapid succession yeah because mm-hmm. that's another thing too right like there's usually a pattern where it lasts so long and then yeah. as you do it more often mm-hmm. y- you can't go for as long between mm-hmm. yeah. your violent act well and you get well, sloppy too yeah right like well and i've heard it referred to as like an addiction yeah for those people yeah. that commit yeah. these things too. yeah and so then i wonder if he i mean because this is literally within a month these yeah. women in 1974 are all within a month of each other mm-hmm. and so what was happening before that started yeah. is a really terrifying thing to think about but yeah. and we yeah. also know that his on again off again relationship with i think they called her Liz a mm-hmm, lot, mm-hmm. Um, was abusive yeah. as well. So. Yeah, and and yeah, uh, but we're going to get into that yeah. next time. Yeah. Thank well, not you. Woo-hoo, that. What? <laughs> Sometimes I say things like, oh, yeah, that's exciting because we're going to talk next time. And then I'm like, but that's but not, not about the, the subject matter. Yeah. But we're, yeah. it is going to be exciting. We like because talking to each other about this. Yeah. And, and providing entertainment for everyone yes. else. But yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, everybody, this this was the Nightmare Collective, and we love all of you, and we hope that you continue to listen to us and help mm-hmm. spread the word, because, yeah. well, 
when more people listen, we get more excited. And that's yeah. just wonderful. And we hopefully will someday have like stickers or something. For you to buy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we've talked about that for like a, a year almost, mm-hmm. but you know, eventually we'll make it yeah. happen. Yeah. And you know? maybe Bundy will be on a sticker. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but mm. for the meantime, keep collecting those nightmares. And stay creepy. I stole it. Yes, you did. (laughs) Good, everybody.